And uh, anyway, that was the first uh, encounter I had with Michael Lawrence. <clears throat> Michael, of course, pastored in D.C. alongside uh, Mark Dever for a number of years. I think eight, if my uh, info's close. Uh, the two of them uh, co-authored a wonderful book, uh, which parallels the themes of this conference, the theme of uh, the blessed covering, the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, the covering forever of sins in a way that animals being sacrificed could never do. They wrote this book called It Is Well, Expositions on Substitutionary Atonement. And that's really what caused me to reach out uh, to Michael. In 2010, the Lord called Michael and his wife Adrienne and their five children, East Coasters, through and through, to move to the west side of the continent. That move was in order for Michael to take his current role as senior pastor of Hinson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon. Michael earned a Master's of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and a Ph.D. in Church History from Cambridge University. Michael's known for his clear expository preaching and his giftedness in biblical theology. This giftedness, combined with his demonstrated love for Christ and his church, have afforded him the opportunity to serve as a frequent conference speaker, both in the United States and abroad. In fact, when I first reached out to him about this opportunity, uh, I had to wait and wait and wait uh, because he was speaking at a large conference in Singapore. Well, last year, a few of us that are in this room uh, went to a Nine Marks uh, event down at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, and uh, when we heard Michael teach on the rich theme of sonship in that conference, um, I was sure I wanted to ask him to come speak for us. So brothers, help me in welcoming this year's keynote speaker, Dr. Michael Lawrence. It is a pleasure to be here with you all uh, this evening. I have been through Michigan many times, but I think last night was the first night that I actually slept in Michigan. So I'm grateful to, to Jeff and to Union Lake for your great hospitality. It's, it's, a, it's a treat to, to be here with you. Uh, as, as Jeff said, I really have spent my whole life on the East Coast or further east. Uh, so it was a little bit of a surprise to me to learn that Detroit is is on Eastern Standard Time. That is surely a mistake. <laughs> that must be a mistake. Uh, the the, uh, the the move from Washington D.C. to Portland uh, has been a fantastic move for me and, and my family. It does feel very much like we've moved back to a foreign country. We lived in England for four years, so we know what it's like to go through culture shock. And we were surprised to find ourselves going through that very thing, culture shock, in Portland. Now, if you want to understand why we were, we were experiencing that, have any of you been to Portland, Oregon? Anybody been? Okay, some of you might know. Um, there's a show called Portlandia. Any of you know that show? One. One brave two. <laughs> Brian knows it. Two, two souls know that show. That show is filmed in my neighborhood. Um, most of it you don't want to see. So I was trying to think, if, if you want to understand my neighborhood, a couple clips that I would send you to. The safe clip is called, Is the Chicken Local? Just go to YouTube tonight, tomorrow, sometime this weekend, and, and just look up, Is the Chicken Local? Dash Portlandia. Uh, if you're feeling a little braver, but I'm warning you, you may be offended. 
uh, you could check out the clip, Portland Dream of the 90s. Both of these clips are filmed in my neighborhood. Uh, The people you see, the extras, didn't have to get dressed up. I, I... I, I pass them every day on, on my way to work. So if that, if that entices you a little bit to, to understand the context that I'm in, it is very different from Michigan, let me tell you. Uh, we, are, we no longer make it into the top 10 least churched cities in America. I'm grateful for that because I think when we moved there, uh, we, we were still in the top 10. But it is a place that's very much in need of the gospel. And so even as I bring you greetings... Uh, from my own church, Henson Baptist Church in Portland, I would invite you to pray for us out in a part of the country that I think really never was evangelized in the first place. Uh, so it, it's a privilege to be able to, to, to be a part of many churches there that are preaching uh, the same gospel that, that you brothers preach and that you hear every week right here in, in Portland, uh, in, in Michigan. And it's good to have fellowship in that gospel. Uh, my, my task... I guess I'm not really using this. My task tonight and tomorrow is to take us through some very, very deep waters of theology. Uh, We're we're not going to, I I don't know what previous years have been like, um, but I I trust that that the the time as as we work through uh, really the the heart of what what I think Christianity is all about, as we work through this together, and as we grapple with some very deep waters of theology, my, my, tr- my trust, my hope, my prayer is that you go away encouraged, that you go away strengthened, and that you go away better equipped to proclaim this glorious gospel that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Now, the very center of Christianity is, is without doubt the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Now, this is, this is a historical fact, and this is a historical fact that even, even unbelievers, at least educated unbelievers, largely accept. It's, it's witnessed, actually, outside of Christian sources. So, basically, everybody agrees Jesus died on the cross, but it's, it's the meaning of that fact that begins to divide believers from unbelievers. The secular world looks at the cross, and, and they see a, a sad tragedy, you know, a, a good man who, whose, whose ministry kind of got out of hand. He got in trouble and he found himself crucified. But believers, Christians, we look at the cross and we see atonement, right? We see this, this blessed covering. The reason I want to talk about this, though, and, 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 and take up, you know, three of your hours over the next 24 hours to talk about this is that, is that increasingly, inside of evangelicalism, atonement has become a point of division. Now, it's always been a point of division in, within, within the, the larger world that, w- that we call uh, Christianity. But, but, but now even evangelicals are beginning to debate this. On the one hand, we have, I think, increasingly cast Christianity as all about our experience of God rather than God's actions for us. This move in modern evangelicalism from God's objective actions to our subjective experience of God has contributed, I think, to a a growing preference among many evangelicals to talk about the atonement 
in relational and experiential terms rather than, and increasingly even to the exclusion of, legal terms. So, so the cross redeems us from slavery to sin. It rescues us from our, our addiction to sin. The cross heals us of, of our sin sickness. This is the way you'll hear about the atonement a lot. And, and it's good to hear about it that way because that's true. Those, those images are, are deeply biblical images of the atonement that Christ's death on the cross achieved. But in addition to this, this subjective move, many, even inside evangelicalism, are increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of God as personally wrathful or his insistence that anyone, much less his own son, suffer for sin. They're happy for sin to be called to account, but suffering, ongoing suffering for sin, this is increasingly disturbing to people. Now, now liberal Christianity has long insisted that a vengeful God inflicting a bloody cross on an innocent sacrificial victim was, was really just a relic of, of primitive religion and, and that really we've, we've long since evolved past that into a, a more humane spirituality. My concern, though, is not with, with liberal theology here. My concern is with, with evangelicals that have begun to have their doubts on precisely these grounds. And we, we see it in a lot of places. It's not just, I think, on the atonement that, that we see this. There, there's a growing movement inside of evangelicalism to give the idea of annihilationism a place at the evangelical table. Uh, increasingly held, in fact, I, j- just, just a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, sitting down with, with a fellow that's been coming along to our church for a couple of years now. And he has been in the in, in evangelical churches his whole life. And I was just asking him, well, why why aren't you joining? And he said, well, I need to talk to you about that. And we sat down, and and turns out, no, he's he's fairly committed to the idea idea of annihilationism as a card carrying evangelical. And and the reason, of course, is that eternal human suffering, not not just temporary definite, finite human suffering, but eternal human suffering seems to him entirely incompatible with God's nature. So, so that's, that, that's where this trend, I think, moves on, on one, one end of the spectrum. When we think about judgment, it, it comes as no surprise then when we move to the other end of the spectrum, we begin to think about salvation, that some evangelicals not only want to decenter penal substitution as an explanation of the atonement, they want to remove it altogether as unworthy of the God that we love. Penal substitution, let me define a term here. Penal substitution is the Christian doctrine that teaches us that Christ on the cross suffered the death, punishment, and curse that we deserve because of our sin. And that he suffered this penal, this punishing violence from the hand of God the Father. In the place of, here's the substitutionary part, in the place of sinners. 
who repent and put their faith in him. That's what penal substitution is. In our sessions tonight, tomorrow, what I, what I hope to convince you of, if you need convincing, what I, what I hope to shore you up in against uh, many who want us to move away from this, uh, is that to abandon, the, to, to abandon penal substitution is to abandon not simply historic Christianity, It is to abandon the gospel itself. It is to abandon Christ's own understanding of his death. And so we're gonna, we're gonna start tonight with some of Jesus' last words that were spoken from the cross. If you, if you got your Bibles, just two verses, Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. Mark 15, verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's those words I want us to understand tonight. and What they tell us about Jesus' own understanding of his death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I think we first, before, before we try to understand what Jesus meant, we need to understand how people in our culture, maybe sitting in the pews of our churches, hear those words. We need to put those words into the cultural context of our own day. I, I could probably go to your local newspaper, and I probably wouldn't have to go many days back before I found a story that we see in our papers with sickening regularity. A a, a report of some child neglected, abused, maybe finally killed by his or her own parent. You you know what I'm talking about. You know these stories. Sometimes the newspapers will publish you know, a picture of, of the child, a, a smiling, innocent face, hopeful, usually. A, a picture that betrays no hint of the fate that awaits that child. And I raise this, I raise this image. I want you to think about this image. Our, our hearts break at these images and these stories. Our, our stomachs turn at the mere thought, much less the reality, of the abuse of a defenseless child by the very one who should love and protect that child. When we begin to think about, when we bring ourselves to read those stories, our, our mind's real, right? We, what, what, what kind of monster must someone be to intentionally neglect, hurt, kill, their own child. And I want you to feel the weight of that emotionally and realize that is, is not this exactly what we say that God the Father did to God the Son. With intent, he killed his own son. 
That's the way our culture hears these words. Here's our theology. That the seeming incongruity, therefore, of attributing violence to a loving God, it's long led liberal theologians to reject the idea that the violence of the cross was God's idea at all, much less his doing. We, we, however, conservative evangelicals, pastors and theologians, we have long argued that God's willingness and his ability to punish evil, to bring violence to bear against evil, is not only consistent with his love and goodness, it's actually necessary. After all, indifference may pass itself off as tolerance, but it's hardly the posture of love, is it? And yet when we come to the cross, the the object of the cross's violence was not a child abuser who was getting his just desserts. It was Jesus. To to the world, to the unbelieving world, at the very least, an example worthy of being followed. To Christians, the object of, of our worship, the Son of God. Either way, the recognition that on the cross, Jesus was the passive victim of violence that he did not deserve, juxtaposed against the traditional Christian teaching that on the cross, God the Father was was pouring out his wrath against sin, it has led some to recoil in horror, just to have disgust. at at the idea of the atonement as penal substitution. Surely there must be a better explanation. Stephen Chalk and Alan Mann, self-described evangelicals, describe this idea of penal substitution as a form of cosmic child abuse. Colin Green has suggested that penal substitution turns Christ into the whipping boy who appeases the wrath of God. Joel Green and Mark Baker insist that such an understanding of the cross is built on a picture of God as a father who is emotion-laden, ever on the verge of striking out. And friends, that strikes a chord with people. Because many of us had fathers who were emotion-laden, always on the verge of striking out. Sometimes we recognize it in ourselves. Surely God is better than that. Surely God must be different than that. Other evangelical and conservative critics unwilling to use such emotionally charged language have suggested that penal substitution is inconsistent with the father's love for the son. What's more, doesn't it it require us to accept a, a division within the Trinity, setting one divine person against another? These are some of the questions that are raised. What... What we cannot escape, though, are Jesus' words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that describe not merely what Christ endured at the hands of Roman soldiers, but the suffering he experienced from his Father. What do we make of these words? Is this an agonized plea for help from the father he loves 
like the child who's being hit by his dad, crying out to his dad, please, daddy, stop. The, The uncomprehending, bewildered cry of a child shrinking from his father's blows. In fact, what we need to understand is that these words of Jesus are neither a plea for help nor the cry of terror. But what we see in these words are are, are the simple, profound, mind-boggling statement that Jesus was forsaken. This is what he experienced on the cross. And it's what he acknowledges here. Jesus was forsaken. What I want to do with the remainder of our time is is, is unpack that, that idea, that Jesus was actually and really forsaken. We're going to answer three questions. Who forsook Jesus? Second, what does it mean that he was forsaken? Third, why was he forsaken? So who forsook him? What does it mean that he was forsaken? And why? So first, who forsook Jesus? Well, if we had time to read through the entire passion narrative, it would almost be easier to ask, who didn't forsake Jesus? Right? On the cross, Jesus was was forsaken by his government. The Jews did not have the authority to put anyone to death. So the fact that Jesus was on a cross must be traced back, finally, to Roman authority. And as, as we see there in chapter 15, verses, verses 15 to 20, it was Romans who did this. Roman soldiers, acting on Pilate's orders, first flogged Jesus and then nailed him bodily to the cross to die. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of capital punishment that Rome had in its quite varied arsenal of forms of capital punishment. It was reserved for traitors, for rebels, for slaves, and for foreigners. Citizens were immune. Roman citizen could not be crucified, almost no matter what he had done. Polite people didn't even use the word. Neither the noun form or the verb form of the word, cross or crucifixion or crucifying, you just... You didn't raise that in polite company. Everybody knew it happened. Nobody talked about it. The charge against Jesus was rebellion, but it was a sham. Pilate admitted that he had no basis to condemn Jesus, but but instead he abandoned Jesus to the will of the crowd anyway that was crying out for his crucifixion. And so Pilate executed a man that he knew to be innocent in order to to curry favor with men. So on the cross, Jesus died unjustly, forsaken by his government. But Jesus wasn't only forsaken by his government, right? He was also forsaken by his own people, the Jews. Now, just a week earlier, they had welcomed him as king. They had shouted hosannas to the one who, who comes in, in the name of David, the son of David. They, they were thrilled that man, Messiah has finally arrived. But, but over the course of that week, they realized, well, this isn't, this isn't the Savior we expected. This isn't the Savior that we wanted. This isn't the Savior that we were hoping for. And so first the crowd shout for his death. And then as the narrative unfolds, as he hangs there on the tree, 
they mock him and insult him. Jesus had claimed to be the one sent by God to save Israel. And in his death, the ones he'd come to save refused him. On the cross, Jesus died rejected, forsaken by his people. Perhaps worst of all, from a human perspective anyway, Jesus was forsaken by his friends, his followers. For three years, Jesus had had poured his life into this this small group of disciples. He had taught them. He had lived with them. He had shared his life with them. But at at his arrest the the night before, betrayed by one of them, they'd all deserted him. Every single last one fled. In his death, Jesus was abandoned by his closest friends. On the cross, Jesus died alone. He died unjustly. He he died rejected. He died alone. It is one of the most heartrending and pitiful sights in all of Scripture. And it shouldn't surprise us. Right? We of all people should come to this narrative and, and, and yes, be saddened but in in no way be surprised. For we understand that that we live in a fallen world. Sin, the broken, fallen human condition, it it turns our stomachs, it, it breaks our hearts, but it never surprises us. Pastors, we, we especially need to understand this, right? When somebody shows up in our office, in our study, in our living room, wanting to finally, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, get something off their chest, right? Confess something. We need to feel the pain of it with them. But they should never see shock on our faces. They're feeling shocked, right? They're, they're amazed that, that they've finally come to acknowledge that they're as bad as they are. So they're feeling quite shocked. But we shouldn't. Because we know the gospel. We, we know what brought Christ to the cross. And long ago we got over it because we know our own hearts. We know that we're no different. Forsaken by the human instruments of justice. Forsaken by those he'd come to save. Forsaken by his friends. It's hard to imagine a more desolate scene. But if we stop there, which is where many people want to stop. If we stop there, we have failed to grasp the the, the true nature of of Christ's forsakenness on the cross. And, And we see it in his words. When human justice failed him, Jesus was silent. When his people mocked him, he didn't reply. When when Peter denied him, there was merely a, a look, a glance. Friends, on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God. And that 
finally brought words to his lips. It was this that that drew out of him that, that anguished cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew full well why everybody else had. The only one that mattered at that moment was the Father. Now, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, when he says that. He's quoting it in his native Aramaic. It's a psalm of David. It had long been understood to be a messianic psalm, though it's not exactly attached to any particular point that we know of in David's life. But but the psalm basically recounts how the, the suffering servant king prays, cries out for God's help and deliverance from what appears to be an execution. And that prayer, as the psalm moves along, that prayer is answered. By the end of the psalm, not only is the king delivered, but that deliverance, the king's deliverance, has resulted in the salvation of the nations who have been brought to worship the Lord. Now that psalm gives us great insight into what the cross actually accomplished and what happened in in the larger narrative of the cross. In in fact, it's so helpful that some have suggested that though Jesus quotes verse 1, he doesn't really mean that God has forsaken him. Nor is he displaying what appears to be despair. I mean, that is the language of despair. Instead, they say, what he really has in mind, though he's quoting verse 1, are those victorious final verses of Psalm 22. To which I say, maybe, certainly possible. We, we know that it was common practice in the ancient world to quote just a sentence or, or, or a verse to refer to a much larger passage. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we should definitely pay attention to all of Psalm 22 when we're trying to understand the cross. It certainly makes his words easier to understand. But when we're trying to grapple with what he's experiencing at this moment. I think to rush to the end of Psalm 22 is a bit like special pleading. We're getting ourselves off the hook. I think rather than explain away the offense and the difficulty of these words, if we would understand the cross, we must grapple with the force and the pain of Jesus' cry of dereliction. For what had been a plea for help in David's mouth has become on Jesus' lips a rhetorical question. In other words, a statement of fact. He's not really asking a question. He's telling us what's happening. He has been forsaken by God, his own father. So what does that fact mean? Second, what does that fact mean? What does it mean that that Jesus was forsaken? And especially by his father. Well, well, at its its simplest, to to be forsaken is to be abandoned. This is what Paul says Demas did to him in 2 Timothy. Demas forsook him. He he, he abandoned him. Paul goes on to say that, that everyone forsook him in his First trial and defense. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, where we're told not to give up meeting together. We're not to forsake one another, but rather to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
Jesus was abandoned by God. So I want to take that simple statement, Christ was forsaken by God, and and I want us to think about it in each of its three components. You can just write that sentence down. Christ was forsaken by God. First, on the cross, Christ was forsaken by God. Underline the by God. This, of course, is what the crowd around him assumes. They know their Old Testament. They know that the law declared that God's curse was on anyone who hangs on a tree. It was obvious that God had forsaken Jesus. Look where he was. They also know the promises of God toward the Messiah, like the promises in Psalm 22, that God would not hide his face from his anointed one or despise and leave him in his sufferings. They knew about his promise in in Psalm 16, that God would not abandon his servant to the grave. Clearly, everybody watching understood Jesus was forsaken by God the Father. But it's not just his enemies that saw it that way. This is what the whole Bible teaches from the Old Testament to the New. Isaiah 53.10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Zechariah 13.7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declared the Lord Almighty, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In the New Testament, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, this man was handed over to you, that is Israel, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He tells the Romans in Romans chapter 3, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. This is the Bible's view about what's going on there. And this is what Jesus himself understood. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus had prayed in agony of soul to his father, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Everything. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That's an extraordinary prayer. He acknowledges that everything is possible. Jesus acknowledges that that God's purpose in the cross, which he's heading to, it it was not something being forced on them. It was not something being forced on God by some, some sort of external logic, and there was just no other way. He understood that this way was God's free decision of his own will. There have been many who have sought to rescue God from the scandal of the cross. They think it's unworthy of him. Unworthy of his character, inconsistent with his love for Christ. But the fact is, the Bible won't let us. So if we want to rescue God from the scandal of the cross, we're going to have to get rid of the Bible. It just won't let us. The cross was God's idea. It was his set purpose from before the foundation of the world. On the cross, Christ was actually forsaken by God. It was the plan from the beginning. And that should encourage you. I have no doubt that there there are some of you here tonight, you you struggle with, with being confident, honestly, that God loves you. Here's the thing. On the cross, God did not stop loving the mediator. 
when he forsook him. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Rather, he was demonstrating the nature of his love for you. Oh, you look at your own lives. I look at my life, and I think, how in the world could God love me? It's it's a legitimate question. (laughs) How in the world could God love me? What the scriptures point us back to again and again is, is the fact that God loves you. Here it is. I'm not going to try to answer how in the world he could. That somehow is deep in the mind and the mystery of God and his unfathomable will. I don't know why he loves you. I don't know why he loves me. But I know for sure that he loves me. Because here's the measure. This is no grudging, miserly love. This is no love for you that was forced on him. No, it was a love that was planned from before the beginning of time. A costly love that involved the forsaking of his own son. And when I remember that fact, I'm, I'm caught up short. What, what, a, what an unbelieving, what an unworthy question then to even ask. How, how could God love me? No, no, the, the, the cross, the cross puts an end to that question. It, it, it settles it. On the cross, Christ was forsaken by God. But we also need to understand that on the cross, Christ was forsaken by God. Underline Christ. From the beginning of Christianity, there have been those that would save Christ from the horror of God forsakenness. In the early centuries of the church, we've got the docetists, various forms of them who claimed that Christ's sufferings weren't real. They only appeared to be real. He wasn't really suffering. It has to do with him not really being in the flesh. Others claimed, of course, that it wasn't really Jesus. It wasn't Jesus on the cross, but at the, at the last second, God rescued Christ and put someone else there. The most popular substitute being Judas, of course. This was an idea that Islam would pick up later and promote, and still promotes to this day. That the prophet Jesus didn't die on the cross, it was Judas who died there. Now, by the Middle Ages, this idea that it wasn't really the Christ suffering on the cross, this idea had taken on a more sophisticated form as the Roman Catholic Church began to teach that though Christ suffered God's forsaking wrath on the cross, he did so only in his human nature. And his divine nature was entirely unaffected and immune. It wasn't the God-man in his God-manness suffering on the cross. It was just the man part of the God-man suffering on the cross. Now, quite naturally, this led Rome to focus on the physical sufferings of Christ the man. It, it, it gave rise to a whole piety steeped in, in the crucifix. The, the body's still there. Uh, the, the mass, the, the, the body of Christ still on the cross and in our mouth. Uh, a lot of this, this would go on and develop all, all sorts of, of things about Roman Catholic spirituality. 
that were that were unhealthy. But without doubt, the first to take this path of kind of rescuing Jesus, rescuing Christ, the God-man, from the horrors of the cross, wasn't his early followers. It, it wasn't Rome. It was his oldest enemy, Satan. It was Satan who first tempted Christ in the desert to take a shortcut in his mission that would avoid the cross. It was Satan who used Peter to try to dissuade Christ from the cross in Mark chapter 8. And surely it was Satan who inspired the mockers to tempt Christ to come down even now from the cross. But we must affirm that it was Christ who was forsaken by God on the cross, not some other substitute and not some partial Christ. The preaching of the apostles was Christ crucified. Christ made sin. Christ offered as a sacrifice. As I said, in the ancient Near East, crucifixion was so offensive that polite people wouldn't talk about it. So it's absurd to think that they would have preached it if they'd had any other choice. It was Christ, the God-man, who was forsaken by God on the cross not merely Jesus in his humanity. As Hebrews 9, verse 14 says, Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God. Now, now yes, it was his human nature that suffered the pains of mortal death. The the divine nature did not die. It, it, It is impossible for the divine nature to die. But it was his divine nature that gave his suffering its infinite value and dignity. So making it effective as a ransom for many. Christ was forsaken by God and he endured that suffering not as the unwilling victim of cosmic child abuse, but as the willing and obedient son of his father. We see this in his prayer in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. We see it in his teaching in John chapter 10. No one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And we see it even in the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the very end, Jesus is willingly obedient to the will of his Father. Now as Christians, this is One of the reasons we understand that Christ is uniquely able to save all those who trust in him. There is no other mediator between God and man. As Peter says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This is why, as as local churches, we devote quite a bit of our budgets, I hope, to to missions. Not because we are neo-colonial cultural imperialists. But because we believe that people, human beings made in the image of God, spend eternity in conscious torment in hell apart from faith in Christ. So it's why we want to see more of our church members leave the comforts of home. And home is really comfortable. And go to take the gospel. It's why those of us who do stay want to Honestly, downsize our lives, our comfortable material lives, to make more of our resources available for the cause of the gospel. And it's why even right here, while we're we're living here and and living a less comfortable life than our incomes could afford us, we want 
to speak of Jesus as often as we can, to as many as we can, to whoever will listen. Hell is real. It lasts for eternity. And it is where human beings will be apart from this mediator. We cannot finally understand the cross, though, and what what it means that that Christ was forsaken until we unpack that word. Christ was forsaken, underline that word, by God. As one theologian has noted, in one sense, we can't understand the God-forsakenness of Christ because it has no parallel in human consciousness. You, ha- In the most important sense, you have no idea what he was going through. His physical agony you can appreciate because, because we've all felt pain. Maybe not that much pain, but we've all felt pain. We know what that's like. His emotional grief you can sympathize with because we too have all known human injustice. We've known the failure of friends. We've known what it, what it is for, for people to let us down. But to be utterly forsaken by God Friends, that is to know the judicial stroke of eternal justice. And you're still drawing breath. And if you're still drawing breath, then you have not known that. You have not known what it is to be forsaken by God. You may feel like you have. You may feel like sometimes God's not been there for you. You may feel like you've been let down. Friends, that's not what we're talking about here. Even if we can't understand this sympathetically, there are things we can and must understand. To begin with, the God-forsakenness that Christ is experiencing on the cross is not merely the absence of God's favor and blessing, though it is that. It is also the positive presence of God in his wrath, actively inflicting his wrath on Jesus. You will hear many people talk about hell. Hell is just the absence of God in all of his love, and all of his goodness. People, people don't want God, and so in the end, God gives them what they want. No God, just the absence of God. And, and that's going to be terrible. And you know, that would be terrible. To spend eternity in a place that was utterly lacking of any of God's goodness, any of God's love, any of the tokens of his favor, even the slightest ones, that would indeed be hell. Oh, that hell were only that good. Hell is not the absence of God. It is the presence of God in his utterly unmitigated fury and wrath against sin. This is what Jesus experienced. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the penalty for sin. Extraordinary because he had none of his own. And yet God made him who had no sin to be sin. He endured a curse of death because God had made him to become a curse. And so bearing sin, Christ then endured the wrath that sin deserves. We need to understand this idea of wrath. More importantly, we need to make sure we don't misrepresent this idea of wrath. The Bible is clear that sin makes God angry. But not angry like we get angry. Right, I, I know how you get angry because you get angry for the same reason I get angry. I get angry because my pride has been insulted. My rights have been infringed upon. And I'm ready to take it out on you since you're the one that did it. Yeah, that's, that's not God in his wrath. God's, God's anger is righteous. 
It is the righteous anger of perfect justice. It is the holy anger of perfect love. Sin is an attack on God's character, his very being, his truth. And so God, unlike you and me, God is right to be angry. Right to be angry at sin and right to punish it as it deserves. So on the cross, this judicial anger is what Christ is experiencing. Which means that on the cross, before Jesus experienced physical death, which he did at the end of those three hours, Christ endured spiritual death in his God-forsakenness. Now again, I don't mean by that, in using that language, that some part of the divine nature died. And I don't mean that the Trinity itself was, was torn apart. Rather, I mean that he experienced the death, though he didn't deserve it. He experienced the death that Adam and Eve experienced immediately upon the rebellion in the garden. You know, it took like 800 more years for their bodies to catch up. But they died that day. God kept his promise. The day that you eat of it, you will die. They entered into spiritual death. Their bodies just were slower getting there. This is what Christ experienced on the cross. The the very thing that you and I are born into. He experienced in in the consciousness of the God-man what it means for God to be utterly and implacably opposed to you because you are by nature an object of wrath. His soul, not just his body, his soul knew the torments That God had stored up for sin. Most importantly therefore. That means that the God forsakenness of Christ. Entailed Christ experiencing what the Bible calls. The second or eternal death. Unless Christ returns first. All of us are going to experience the death of our bodies. Our bodies are going to catch up with our souls. But our souls, as you know, are immortal. God God created them to live forever. So the Bible tells us that the day will come, the, the day of the Lord, when our bodies will be resurrected and body and soul, we will have to give an account to the Lord. Paul says in Romans chapter two, those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, for them there will be wrath and anger. In the book of Revelation, John has given a vision of that day of wrath and anger. All those whose names are not found in the book of life are cast body and soul into hell, described as a second death of unending conscious torment as finite creatures bear the penalty for their sin against an infinite and holy God. How can a finite creature ever repay an infinite debt? It will take all eternity to pay that debt back. Friends, on the cross, it is this eschatological judgment, this final judgment, which Christ endured in his person, body and soul. Not in extent of time, but in fullness of experience. He didn't just save us from hell. He went there. In our place. This is the point of verse 33. 
the darkness that covers the land from noon until 3 p.m. No natural eclipse, which was physically impossible at that time of the month. This darkness was a supernatural act of God as the day of the Lord came crashing down in time and history upon the soul of Jesus Christ. Like the plague of darkness that just preceded the judgment against the firstborn of Egypt. This darkness is the darkness of judgment prophesied by Amos. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. You know, over the centuries, some have taught that after his bodily death on the cross, Jesus descended into hell. It's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that Jesus made atonement for sin on the cross, not after it. This is where his descent into hell happened. Right there. Alive. Living. Into hell. There to experience in his soul the torments reserved for those who have been forsaken of God. For three hours, he endured those torments. His eschatological darkness called him and at the, covered him. And at, at the end of those three hours, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The infinite wrath of God against sin, he bore. Until it was exhausted. And that is good news for us. If Christ has borne the wrath of God and exhausted it. If Christ not just saved you from hell. But went there in your place. And Christian you don't need to live any longer. As if God is still angry at you. There's no anger left. We do this all the time though, right? We, we, we live as if God is angry at us. And so I've got to do, I've got to do something. You know, I, I, I went back to that sin one more time. That sin I said I'd never go back to. I did it. Oh. Okay, God, I'm going to, I know you're angry at me. I'm going to make it up to you. Right? I'm going to spend more time in my quiet times. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop kicking my dog. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be nicer to my kids and my wife. I volunteer to serve as a deacon. Just don't be angry at me, God. Friends, the truth of the gospel is, if you're in Christ, there's no anger left. None. And you couldn't do anything about it, even if you tried. But praise God, you don't even have to try. Because Jesus has dealt with it. I think we need to warn people, maybe even here tonight. There there may be a room this large. There may be somebody here who's not a Christian. You need to take this seriously. Understand that what the perfect and divinely supported nature of Christ could just endure for three hours. Your unaided soul will be subject to for all eternity 
if you die apart from Christ. Maybe you've spent your whole life in the ministry, but but you're not actually a believer. Maybe you've even suspected that, but it's too embarrassing to admit it because people pay you to be a Christian. Maybe you're the kind of person that grew up in the church and it feels like it's too late to admit otherwise. Oh, friend, it's not too late. Delay is folly. Christ is sufficient. Finally, briefly, why did God forsake Christ? Why did he forsake him? Well, this is what I was just alluding to. Right? The, the question hangs there. Jesus' last words, and no one answers. There's silence. Though it stands as a declaration of what Christ endured, it also demands an answer. And the answer, praise God, is simple and profound. Christ was forsaken by God like this so that we who have put our faith in him will never be forsaken. This is the message of the cross. And without this, we have no message. This is what the apostles preached. It's what the prophets preached. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Isaiah 53.5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Penal substitution does not turn God into a cosmic child abuser. It does not reduce Christ to the passive victim of gross injustice. It does not pit the Trinity against itself. No, in the God-forsakenness of Christ on the cross, the love of God and the justice of God are both revealed, united in purpose. The sinless Jesus bore our sin, and then the Father poured out, and Christ endured the wrath that sin deserves, so that we who deserve nothing but wrath, will never endure it. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the cross. And it calls us to forsake our sin, to to turn away from our sin, and to embrace instead Christ and his death on our behalf. Just by way of closing, because I know I'm going over time, but just by way of closing, brothers, what sin are you cherishing today? What, what, what sin has, has just kind of taken up lodging in your hearts? And you know it's wrong, but, but you're not quite ready to get rid of it. You feed it occasionally. You indulge it. What sin is that? Have it in your mind. You know what it is. For love of the forsaken Christ, forsake that sin. In in the power of the gospel, in the knowledge that you are loved and forgiven, forsake that sin. What a small thing 
What a small thing it is to forsake your sin, to forsake the whole world even, in exchange for never being forsaken by God. Let us be men who not only preach that Christ was forsaken for us, but who live that out in lives that are given over in love to to holiness, not so that God will love us, but because he already has. Would you pray with me?